Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me today are Spike's Deputy Editor and host of The Last Orders Podcast, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show today, we'll be talking new parties, the row between France and Italy and campus censorship. Party insiders are talking about an anti-Brexit campaign to occupy the political middle ground. New anti-Brexit parties has officially launched. After what many would say is the shambles of Brexit, would voters in the UK be open to a centrist party? Nigel Farage has announced his official return to the Brexit fray this morning. The former leader of UKIP says it would be negligent to stand by and watch MPs wreck Britain's bid to leave the European Union. According to a recent Comres poll, 79% of voters think that most politicians do not take into account the views and concerns of ordinary people. 64% of voters say, today's parties do not offer me an appealing choice of who to vote for. So if the established parties aren't representing the public, do we need new parties to do the job? Tom, you wrote about this this week. Uh, Can you tell us your thoughts? Yes, yeah, so I wrote about it this week under the kind of headline of the rise of the not shores. And that's mm. one thing which I've noticed many other people have noticed as well, to be fair, which is that over the course of the past six months, kind of as the Brexit crunch has really been taking place, as um, Brexit has been passing through Parliament and hitting all of these roadblocks, this big kind of constitutional question of, you know, how does the public's desire to leave the European Union pan out, given that so much of the political class is either dead set against it or pursuing their own kind of, you know, particular agendas and particular battles within their own parties. One thing that was so striking is as all of this is going on, um, in a three-way race between Theresa May, Prime Minister, Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, and Not Sure. Not Sure has won practically every week <laughs> in YouGov's <laughs> tracking poll over the, since basically um, July last year to January this year. And I think what it really just brought home, along with the statistics that you just quoted there from Comres, is that at a time of really kind of constitutional importance, at a time in which the future of British democracy is basically on the line we have a political class which is arguably almost illegitimate you know they Mm. do not command mass support this isn't just a question of two particularly uncharismatic and useless leaders it goes right down to party affiliation and I think that puts us in a really interesting and actually quite dangerous position in many respects particularly as leave voters because what's happened and this has been commented on by various political scientists is that British politics has repolarized around the issue of Brexit yeah. this is something Sir John Curtis pointed out last year which is that only about nine percent identify very strongly with either the Labour Party or the Tory party or any political party for that matter whereas 44 percent of people strongly identify with either remain or leave and yet the two main political parties do not represent that new divide if anything they're trying to contain it they're trying to squash it Um, and I think that just opens up a really interesting question about um, are the parties now a block to that new realignment where is this new realignment going to come from is it going to come in time for us leavers to actually see our will enacted and, and what happens next but I think it's just fascinating that at this hugely crucial time at which the political class are charged with such a huge undertaking that they just don't enjoy particular popular support. Ella? Well, yeah, it's a really interesting question of what new parties need to emerge or new shifts need to happen. The answers at the moment are incredibly depressing Mm. or missing the marks. You've got had a host of uh, pop-up centrist parties like the Radicals, the Democrats, Spring the Party, Renew Britain, United for Change, now 12 together. All of them them are pretty embarrassing, really, and Mm. unable to kind of grasp what it actually is that people want. I don't think it necessarily is a centrist party. 
Then you also have things like Blair's former chief of staff, Jonathan Powell, has been meeting uh, in J.K. Rowling's press offices <laughs> to, <laughs> to try and create a kind of basically an anti-Corbyn pro-European party backed by Rachel Riley from Countdown. I mean, you can imagine how attractive that's going to see with, seem with most ordinary people. And then you've got the Brexit party supposedly being ch- championed by Nigel Farage, who is under some kind of illusion that he is... A great, not just a great man of the people, but kind of holds popular support. I mean, forgetting the fact that UKIP's numbers when they, you know, in the height of the referendum was at about 4 million, then tanked after the referendum to about you know under 600,000. I mean, UKIP is not a party or a pol- holds a politics that people feel attracted to. So on all sides, it's just very obvious that no yeah. one actually grasps that people want something new, not a going back to a kind of Blairite, version before Corbyn or some kind of throwback to the ridiculous politics of UKIP. It's just depressing to show that they can't get a handle on it. On the other hand, it's very exciting for those of us who do want something new because I think people aren't willing to settle anymore. That's shown with their disinterest in both the main parties and with these new startup parties. So if someone did want to come along and do something different, I think now is a really interesting time to do that. I'm totally fascinated by these new centrist parties that yeah. keep coming up and, and dying. Often it's, it seems to be the case that someone gets a bit drunk and um, starts a party and then has to <laughs> disband it. Um, but, you know, for instance, this United for Change party started by Simon Franks, which, you know, had splits already before it even really began. But it has managed to raise £50 million. Now, that might not sound like a lot of money to an American listener, but bear in mind that at the last election, you're talking, you know, the Tories spent about 18 million, Labour about 11 million. That is a huge amount of money. But then, you know, who would vote for it? Essentially, they want to basically copy the Lib Dems. It's the kind of politics of the Lib Dems, both socially and economically. And it would probably appeal to the same constituency of the Lib Dems, which, as we know, is, you know, around about 10% of the country max. And there seems to be this huge juncture between the opinions that are totally overrepresented in the pages of the Times, in the Guardian, the BBC, the Economist, and what people actually feel in the country at large. And, you know, so many of the new centrist parties seem to want to appeal to that very narrow slither of voters. Mm. There does seem to be an enthusiasm gap because one of the interesting kind of paradoxes is um, that, as I was saying, kind of British politics is repolarized around this Brexit issue and very much on both sides, you know. I mean, we pointed out previously that there's an awful lot of Remainers who are still Democrats and want to see Brexit carried through with, but nevertheless, it does represent some kind of values divide, you mm. know, on the question of democracy, technocracy, on the question of something more radical versus stability. It's quite clear that there is something there, but there is also this kind of enthusiasm gap because there's no shortage of new centrist upstart parties. I thought it was interesting that United for Change, that one of their um, founder members has already broken off to form this 12 re- this twelve together party, which refers to the 12 regions, which almost no one ever refers to. So it's kind of interesting. Um, but at the same time, of course, on the, on the Brexit side, you're seeing far less activity, far less money being raised. It does often fall to Nigel Farage, it seems, <laughs> to think about launching something. And now he has backed this um, move from a former UKIPper who set up this Brexit party with this main aim of fighting European elections if Article 50 is extended. Now, there does seem to be a fair bit of support, at least when you look at polls, for some kind of Brexit party, Mm. particularly if um, it's clear that Brexit is going to be thwarted. But at the same time, I think that, especially in a kind of Kippery form, it's only ever going to work as a kind of protest vote, a kind of UKIP in 2014 at the European elections, people voting for it to make a point. What I think all of these new parties actually 
reflect is that they kind of misunderstand what it takes to create a new political party. They kind of want to set up a brand, a website, a receptacle for people's frustrations on either side rather than a party that has real roots in society, that has real kind of flesh to it and that crucially grows up from the grassroots rather than something you just kind of create and hope people will flock to. It's a very it's a very kind of Blairite idea of politics, which is that you basically have a brand rather than a party. Um, and I think that whilst a lot of people talk about being politically homeless these days, I think this is this void is most dangerous, of course, for Leave voters, mm. because we don't have the support of powerful people in the establishment. 75% of MPs at the time of a referendum backed Remain, the only party currently in Parliament that at the time of the referendum was formally backing Brexit is the DUP. There, there is some interesting polling around this question of a, uh, of a Brexit party um, that Matthew Goodwin has dug out. So for instance, 73% of Leavers say they would vote for a new party on the right committed to leaving the EU. 70% of Leavers feel that main parties don't offer an appealing choice. You know, that's true of all voters, actually. And 72% of um, Leavers feel the Tories are handling Brexit badly. So there does seem to be a space for a party. But the problem is that if such a party succeeded and we did leave the EU as promised on March the 29th, 2019, then what next? You know, yeah. actually, we should be looking to the future, a post-Brexit future. You know, what, what can we do when we're outside of the EU? So a party that's purely designed for Brexit alone seems to be a bit of a non-starter. We, we, want, we need to be thinking long-term about how we represent people in, in politics. Well, that's the exact problem because Brexit has now been, by all sides, even the most ardent leavers, it's been treated as just this sort of policy issue that you need to just get past. So you just need to either get May's deal through or you need to just leave the European Union and then everything will be fine afterwards. Mm. I'm not saying that everything will be terrible afterwards, but the whole excitement for most Leave voters, or all of the ones that I know anyway, was that it wasn't just about leaving this institution. That was the first step. Yeah. on the, It was the beginning of a whole different way of doing politics. That was why so many people cared about the sovereignty issue. It wasn't just because you know the EU was the one thing that was blocking all progress in Britain. It was saying from that new starting point, we can then start talking about the NHS, immigration, housing, in the light of a new Brexit Britain, which mm. was a very different kind of playing field for politics. I would be thinking very seriously about whether or not to back an, a Brexit party, even if it was a, a Brexit protest party. Leavers have no political representation at the moment. And so anything is worth thinking about. Think about it, but also let's, I think, let's think bigger. If we're faced with a big decision of what kind of new politics do we want today post-Brexit, there's no need to settle at this point. I think there's time to be quite daring, perhaps say, well, uh, let's rip it up and start again. Mm. And it is just really exciting times as well. I think that's the thing that amidst all of the kind of slow motion betrayal of Brexit in Parliament, it's really fascinating that the two main parties which have dominated British politics for, you know, as, as long as anyone can remember effectively, are starting to crack under the weight of it. You know, I mean, these parties, the first past the post system always kind of has created this kind of duopoly. And of course, that means that they always have to be broad churches and they're going to have competing interests and different views on all kinds of things. But the defining issue of the day is the Brexit issue and that cuts across both of the main parties one of the most exciting things about the leave vote and its aftermath was that in the immediate aftermath you kind of were wondering if both these parties were about to collapse they kind mm. of suddenly had no 
meaning. But whilst we've seen, of course, at the last election, you see, you know, working class leavers moving towards the Conservative Party, you see um, metropolitan Remainers bolting for the Labour Party and attempt to kind of repolarise them almost against their wishes because the party establishment want to try and bridge divides, want Mm -hmm. to try and smooth things over. It's quite clear that those parties cannot hold. The problem is, in order to crack that edifice, you do need some form of challenger. And that is what we're waiting for at this point. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right. Now back to the show. The French and Italian governments have been trading blows for months. Tensions escalated significantly last week when Italy's deputy prime minister and leader of the populist Five Star Movement went to the outskirts of Paris to meet with the Gilets Jaunes. This sparked the biggest diplomatic row between the two neighbouring countries since the Second World War. Tom, what's going on here, do you think? Well, what I think we're seeing coming to a head here is this kind of divide across Europe and between European leaders, which has really been summed up over the past year as between kind of Salvini, mm-hmm. <laughs> the interior minister of Italy, and between Emmanuel Macron. Both um, the populist government of Italy, which was elected last summer, and Macron have really used one another as a foil, I think it's fair to say. When the Five Star Movement and the Lega coalition came to power, you had Macron quite clearly denouncing them, talking about the leprosy of of populism growing up across Europe. And at the same time, Salvini in particular has used Macron as a foil for um, an aloof technocratic EU establishment that is not only not listening to voters, but also incredibly hypocritical. The issue Mm. of migration has been very clear, the battle over who was going to take the Aquarius ship full of migrants, Salvini turning it away, but then pointing out that France were certainly not falling over themselves to take in those migrants. And what we're seeing really is that kind of coming to a head, particularly over Di Maio meeting the Yellow Vest. Now, it's fair to say that probably Di Maio was doing this as a bit of a stunt when the um, Five Star Movement came into power. They were, were course came into power as the as the biggest party yet very quickly the Lega, the the more right-wing populist faction has totally eclipsed them in terms of um, popularity um, and the polling numbers in particular it's quite clear that ahead of the european elections in may whilst Lega already have a kind of faction within the european parliament of the kind of hard right populist um, five star are looking for more kind of coalitions and of course some yellow vests are going to stand in those european elections etc but the longer term picture is one of a europe which is in terms of its leadership if nothing else cutting across these kind of populist versus europhile divides um, and just showing that that kind of schism is not really going anywhere and it's only really going to intensify particularly as we go into those elections in may ella well i mean whatever you think about Italy and there's definitely I don't think that it's the kind of perfect populism going on there I think the the interesting thing has been how Macron is so embodied he's you know like two steps away from wearing a rah-rah skirt and being the kind of cheerleader expert on the EU Mm. um he's always promoted that as his kind of politics and yet he's facing his own country he's you know as you've reported Fraser firing on his own populace um the gilet jaune he's shown himself to be completely at odds with any kind of desire to to serve what french people want in terms of economic policy then translate that to how the eu is treating italy i mean it's forced italy to renew its proposed budget 
several times when Italy wants to do things like create a citizen's mm. income yeah. uh, and, you know, make provisions for the unemployed, boost social services with the backdrop of the fact that Italy has a giant unemployment crisis, about 30%, and 23% of people at risk of poverty. I mean, it's... it's uh, have that within the EU saying no you cannot do anything mm. to benefit your citizens and Macron championing that um if you had to pick a side I definitely wouldn't be picking Macron's side yeah. and and the picture of the populist revolt in in Europe is varied because obviously there are some even within the gilets jaunes I mean it's quite clear that there are left and right splits now which mm. means that it's not necessarily the kind of coherent movement that you might perhaps have wanted it to have been but what is definitely clear is that European leaders are standing completely at odds alongside the EU, completely at odds with their own populaces. And where, where that will go is unknown, but it's certainly not going to go in the EU's favour. It just can't. Mm. And I think, you know, the the phenomenon of anti-establishment, anti-EU, you know, populist parties, if you want to call them that, I mean, it, it's just steamrolling on and on. And according to a new report by the European Council on Foreign Relations, these types of parties are expected to, to win about 35% of the seats in, in the upcoming European elections, you know, 250 seats in the, in the European Parliament, which is a major, major um, shift in, in European politics. You know, just on this question of the gilets jaunes, what's interesting, it, it reminds me of the, as we were talking about in the last conversation, this putative Brexit party. There's been a fair bit of polling on would French people theoretically vote for a yellow vest party? Around, you know, 13%. We're talking about a party that's only been cobbled together, you know, in the in the last few weeks yeah. that has, you know, about 13 candidates and 60 other places to fill and, and people already would, would plump for that over the existing French parties. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. You think about the rise of the, the five-star movement, as uh, you're right, Tom, as you say, they're floundering a bit at the moment, but they've gone from basically being an internet-led movement, something that started on on chat rooms, yeah. and, and you know, led by a comedian, led by yeah. a comedian, <laughs> into being, in, you know, into basically coming top in the Italian elections in in the summer. I mean, the potential for change here is is extraordinary. I mean, of course, mm. these parties have their their weaknesses and their and and their faults, but um, the fact is that we shouldn't see you know the changes in Europe as being one note as being purely you know xenophobic or yeah. you know far right there's, there's actually lots of different interesting things happening lots of different types of movement partly as you say from some slightly more to the left some slightly more to the right there are things going on that are shaking things up and i think that's definitely something we should welcome definitely and just on the sort of question of you know as we were talking about this way in which the question of the european elections in europe at the moment is being kind of pit as sort of macron versus salvini as open versus closed mm. as um you know good natured centrism versus this kind of these kind of darker forces i think it's important as you say to kind of pick that up you know it's quite clear that many people that the populist revolt is taking different forms across Europe. And also I think it's important to not give people like Macron and even the kind of wannabe Macrons in this country trying to set up anti-Brexit parties more credit and more popular support than they actually have. And to see that kind of gap, all you've got to do is compare Salvini's popularity to Macron's popularity. You know, mm. Salvini, as of about October, I think his approval ratings were about 60% when he was kind of doing battle with 
France and other EU nations over the question of migration. There were pro-Salvini demonstrations in Rome. Yeah. And now you look at Macron, there's civil unrest on the streets. If one thing, you know, there are splits within the Gilets jaunes, but they're definitely united on their hatred for Macron. Yeah. Um, and his popularity, as we all know, is tanked. You know, at points it's been dwindling around the low 20s in yeah. terms of his approval rating. So while, yes, this is the new battle, it is on some, it isn't about two distinct demographic factions, one of which is very happy with the technocratic status <laughs> quo and then another set which want to upset it for nefarious xenophobic reasons. It's quite clear that the real split is between people like Macron, people of the old order, just trying to kind of dole themselves up in new clothes so that they can hang on to their positions of power and these new upstarts of various different hues who are trying to upset that. I mean, contrast just the approval rating of Macron versus the Gilets jaunes. I mean, even yeah. after 13 weekends of, of civil unrest, 64% of French people support the Gilets jaunes, according to a recent YouGov poll, and 74% of them agree that their protests are justified. I mean, this is absolutely extraordinary. I've said many times that I think the Gilets jaunes are progressive force for good, but I could also understand why if you're a French citizen you might be annoyed that uh, (laughs) there is a protest in your town every weekend stopping you from going to the petrol station or whatever and yet the support remains incredibly high there's an incredible momentum behind this movement and yeah so let's wait and see if it can turn into an electoral force as well and if it can really start to challenge people like Macron start to challenge the EU establishment in the polls as well as on the streets. I'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to Spiked. I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spiked has some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So, if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Campus censorship is in the news again, and the government has recently produced new guidance on upholding free speech at universities. But many of the worst culprits in the campus culture wars simply deny there is any problem. They say it's a myth cooked up by the media. Ella, what are your thoughts on on this? Well, there's one recent example that can just put to bed the idea that this is a myth, the problem of campus censorship. A Bristol Students' Union stopped the Bristol Free Speech Society from inviting a speaker (laughs) to an event questioning whether there is a problem with free speech on campus, right? (laughs) So it cancelled a speaker for a free speech event held by the Free Speech Society. It's obvious that this is an issue. And the speaker, Angela Sophocleus, who was a student from Durham, was stopped from coming simply because he had previously retweeted a Spectator article which questioned the idea of trans and self-ID. I mean, this is utterly outrageous, but they gave some kind of hashed reason why they were kind of postponing the event and gave the society very little time to reorganize it. But basically, this was quite a clear cut example of censorship. This has been going on for a long time. I remember when we were doing the Spike Free Speech University rankings, uh, a student society at Lincoln got banned from social media by its students union Mm. for sharing our results, for simply (laughs) sharing data. With some zip mouth emojis, I seem to remember. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) It's utterly mad. And the thing is, we and people who are serious about free speech 
keep flagging these incidents, mm. you know, and keep saying this is a real issue, not just because we want people to students to be able to invite who they like because but it's creating a wider culture on campus of fear around open discussion and the response from student union leaders and the nus and people who are hostile to free speech on campus is just really kind of patronizing and really degrading view of just calm down you're making such a big deal they take the piss and say oh freeze speech and all that kind of thing it's really insidious and it really has to be challenged yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, in this in this Bristol case, the SU just deny that there was any censorship going on. They yeah. say, oh, we believe in free expression, blah, blah, blah. They cite these bogus security reasons, quote unquote. And, um, you know, they say they even had consultations with the police to say, you know, Angelos Sophocles is, a, is somehow a threat, is somehow going to whip people up into such a frenzy that they cannot, you know, hold a discussion. I mean, these kinds of excuses crop up all the time. If you're hosting a controversial speaker or trying to discuss a sensitive issue, basically you're just thrown all these bureaucratic hurdles, you know, which sometimes can be insurmountable. Sometimes you're asked to, you know, set your, your speakers have to send their speeches in advance to be vetted. Sometimes you need to be able to organise safe space marshals to come to your event you know so people from the SU have to be available to sit there and listen to find out if any naughty words are going to be said which apparently is not a threat to free speech in their in their world so technically yes nowadays nobody even has to explicitly ban someone but the effect on free speech is the same and I remember a couple of years ago um when there were these rows over over no platforming and a lot of SU types would just say well this person hasn't specifically been no platformed you know they would they would cite the fact that there's only about four or five you know various groups from Islamists to far right groups like National Action who are on the NUS's no platform list. But the effect is still the same. They're making a completely disingenuous you know technical distinction between yeah. um, no platforming and some other form of um, censorship. Definitely. In some respects, I think this kind of very duplicitous argument they're making now is showing that we're making a little bit of progress. Because Mm. when we first started really digging into this issue, running campaigns around it, doing the free speech university rankings, broadly speaking, people would say we're proud of our, you know, record of censorship. (laughs) Why would you want someone who's so offensive coming to campus and upsetting everyone? Now what they're trying to do, as you say, Fraser, is make these incredibly technical distinctions, trying to do things in a very underhanded way only ever blaming security concerns rather than just openly saying that we do not want this sort of person on campus and also making these really spurious arguments so uh, a couple of weeks ago the equality and human rights commission put out this guidance which was nominally about effectively trying to create a more robust standard for how you deal with free speech issues on campus it's worth noting that universities and students unions are subject to all kinds of like competing legal obligations Mm. which really do give them, if nothing else, a lot of cover to pull off the kinds of tricks that you've been talking about. In a way, the guidance didn't tell us anything we didn't already know, but and we wrote about it on Spite. But what was most interesting for me, at least, was the kind of quotes that came attached to it from the National Union of Students, from Universities UK, which is the kind of big universities group, is that they're effectively trying to say that this wasn't a problem whatsoever. Mm. Um, and making these really ridiculous arguments, saying that, of course, on campus, we hold thousands of events every year and none of those are banned. <laughs> now, of course, our own research suggests that over about the past three years, or so there's maybe been about 12 events at mainstream universities which have been shut down that we can track but at the same time no one is suggesting that it's you know every other geography conference or every other (laughs) speaker on advanced mathematics Mm. is being hounded off campus it's a ridiculous argument and it misses the fact that so much of the censorship is either underhand as you said or preemptive you know we found that around 50% of universities have policies warning students and speakers away from offending faith groups or wading in to questions 
of religion, no platform is a preemptive policy. You're not allowed to invite these people in the first place for them to then be put on and then banned. So there's an awful lot of bad faith in this discussion. It's ridiculous to see the main purveyors of campus censorship trying to then turn around and say it's not happening. And I think this story at Bristol this week, as well as Peter Hitchens (laughs) at Portsmouth the other week, having his uh, talk moved at the last minute because allegedly it clashed with LGBT History Month and that was something which could be potentially too offensive, has just proven that they haven't got a leg to stand on when it comes to this. It is these kind of underhanded methods. Uh, I remember I went to, I was invited to a debate in Aberystwyth before Christmas um, on feminism. We had a really good debate and there was a woman in the audience who kind of locked eyes with me for the entire event and was noting down everything I said and I thought this is brilliant I've got a fan you know Mm. I felt really good about myself (laughs) and then she came up to the uh, student organizer afterwards and said I've been monitoring your entire event um, because I've been watching out for any hate speech I'm a trade union representative and I'm here on at the behest of the students union the LGBT society and I mean it was really horrible I'm you know sinister at all no yeah it's not sinister at all it's it it didn't you know I wasn't that phased by it but the student was really frightened because she was asked me am I going to get into trouble and I had to actually say well it's not out of the realms of possibility that you might get into Mm. trouble these days and that kind of thing means that she'll think twice about putting on another event as it happens people did get really heated and we had a really fiery debate but we all went to the pub afterwards and had a good time and talked about it the problem is that student unions and the nus particularly have really drilled down on this focus on mental health they're like their modus operandi now is to panic about students mental health and that's how they justify all of these policies because they say if there is the possibility for harm to be created Mm. if someone feels uncomfortable even or stressed out or upset which is completely subjective then they will ban speakers so we have for a long time challenged the sort of the legal aspects of it the policy aspects of it but we've also said this is not simply an issue in which if you wipe away policies or stop the nus from putting prohibitions down on Mm. on universities that it will go away this is a much more uh, wide-reaching culture of fear of harm that needs Mm. to be challenged on campus well the important point as well to make in all of this is the fact that um, this really comes in the midst of this attempt from government to try and sort out the free speech issue on campus as they see it basically by trailing a kind of pro-free speech crackdown which is what these guidelines are a part of there's been the office for students this kind of newly minted universities regulator where at one point it was suggested they would have a role in potentially even defunding universities that fail to uphold their legal obligations the one thing in the guidance which i think is genuinely controversial and rightly so is the fact that it implies quite heavily that students unions actually no platforming speakers could potentially be illegal um, Mm. which is actually a bit of a break from the understanding up to now which is that students unions are independent charities can make their own rules but what i think that reminds us of is the fact that the fight for free speech on campus cannot be a legalistic one it certainly can't be one led by the state you can't fight one form of a liberalism with another and it really needs to come from the bottom up the problem is that i think the last couple of weeks the disingenuousness the saying that censorship isn't going on even as they are literally enacting censorship just shows what a mountain to climb there still is i guess You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.